From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frankogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, The Death of Alternative Energy, a look at climate gentrification, a conversation with Denver's chief sustainability officer, and can carbon offsets empower marginalized communities? It's a triple bottom line this week on 350. Without federal oversight, who will be the standard bearer for the environment? Who will inspire, influence, and innovate to secure a sustainable future? Who will create a legacy of leadership? You will. Lead from the front. The Environmental Defense Fund has your back. It's August 18th, 2017. Welcome to this week's episode of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower, and with me is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Hello, Joel. Did you miss me? <laughs> miss you? I'll bet you missed me from last week. Well, you were on last week. Yes, I was. Oh, so I see. So we're doing this twice in a row. Normally yes. we would alternate between you and Lauren as my co-host. But yeah, of course, I missed you and I'm wanted back. you back. So that's great. How I'm are back. you? I am weary. <laughs> uh, trying to avoid the news um, <laughs> and <laughs> not being very successful. Um, and we've, we've talked about this a lot, but I think the great thing about the GreenBiz staff right now is that we're being realistic, but we're also being optimistic about like the good things happening in the world. And it's been a particularly tough couple of days <laughs> um, over here <laughs> in New Jersey, at least. I don't know about in Oakland. Tell me something yeah. good. Um, <laughs> no? <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, it's business as usual, which these days is kind of challenging. I mean, I, I guess the thing that struck me uh, this week is that, yeah, I mean, there's all this just horrible, horrific stuff that has been going on around racism and all this coming out of Charlottesville, uh, this amazing, wonderful town in Virginia, uh, where the University of Virginia is headquartered. And I know you've been there, and I used to spend a lot of time there myself. And all the responses uh, from the business community and from the White House and on and on and on that just, you know, we don't need to talk about now. But amid all that, Mm -hmm. Well, all that's going on, there's this whole other world. So on Tuesday, I think it was, the president signed an executive order rolling back the environmental standards for infrastructure improvements. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I know we don't have an infrastructure plan yet. There's a you know, trillion-dollar package that's been talked about, I think, in one page. But so far, there's no actual legislation. But as we get into construction of roads, bridges, pipelines, uh, and other things, the Trump administration wants to uh, roll back what they say is just incredible red tape and complexity mm -hmm. and, and environmental reviews and other permitting decisions that take a long time to uh, have all that done within 90 days so that you can get into the project sooner. And, you know, once again, there's a lot of complexity behind those kinds of things that isn't being talked about because it's not sexy news and it, the president's not even talking about it from the White House or his golf course or anywhere else. And yet this is uh, highly relevant to everything that we do and talk about. Yeah. Meanwhile, P.S., 
What did Louisiana have? What did they have in New Orleans again over the past week? Flooding. And that's what you know, one of the things that we're talking about. The Federal Flood Risk Management Standard was axed this week by the Trump administration as part of this positive spin. going to be great for infrastructure investment, and there's all this red tape, et cetera, et cetera. But amid this decision, we have, again, uh, evidence of the need for this kind of thoughtful planning and the need for cities, especially those along the coasts, to think differently about how they manage through potentially green infrastructure like bioswales and, and, and just different ways of, of not putting in that gray stuff to batten back all the water, but to really think more thoughtfully about how to, over the long term, mitigate the uh, potential impact. So the thing that was asked this week specifically, or one of the things, was the federal flood risk management standard. So, yeah, so that's different from the thing I was talking about. That's another yeah. thing. This is uh, President Obama signed an executive order that required strict building standards for government-funded yep. projects to reduce their exposure to flooding from sea level rise. President Trump signed an executive order this week to revoke that. Um, yep. And... Yep is all part of streamlining the current process for infrastructure. But I think yeah. that was a, separate from the you know general infrastructure rollback and mm-hmm. environmental mm-hmm. rules. Um, mm-hmm. But the point is that it's so easy to be cheeky here that, you know, of course you should roll back those standards because there's virtually no chance that there'll ever be an increase in flooding from sea level rise in the United States in the next uh, few years. You know, not, you know, this is, this is so short-sighted. And, you know, from a business perspective, you know, businesses try to mitigate risk. That's what businesses do. Uh, they try to understand where the risks are and mitigate risk and plan accordingly and invest accordingly. And what I don't am waiting to see is when do these rollbacks create enough uncertainty in the business community that they say, wait, stop, basta. Yeah. You know, we need, <laughs> uh, we need more, we need certainty. We need to, you know, the status quo, yeah, some of it's onerous. Uh, some of it could be more streamlined, but let's not just throw it all out because it creates new uncertainty for us and increases risk, and those go against our business interests. Yeah. Why are we building new highways when we can be more thoughtful about how traffic is controlled? I mean, just... Ugh. Yeah, so short-sightedness is uh, rampant this week in lots of ways, um, mm-hmm. but let's look a little further out and... Uh, get into the Week in Review and all that that says about where we're going in our world. So, Heather, you had a couple great stories that I want to talk about, uh, I want you to talk about. And the first one involves... (laughs) Expedia and carbon offsets. What's going yes. on there? So we actually had an interview with the, the fellow behind this story last week, and I'll point back to um, the organization. It's called Carbon Offsets to Alleviate Poverty, um, COTAP. And here's the corporate champion for this particular project, Expedia. Okay, travel giant, they've been investing in carbon offsets for a long time. I think about for the last 10 years, you could offset the footprint of a a trip that you took. Like if you booked a flight on Expedia, you could also at the same time buy the offsets to, uh, to manage that, right? It's like five or 10 or $15. Yeah. I mean, you just add it to your in it. So they've been thinking about this for a long time, but this goes one step far. And one of the best things about carbon offsets is the potential um, indirect impact that it could have on a emerging community, right? Often the money goes to organizations in emerging economies to help with various, you know, forest protection projects or 
programs to prevent deforestation. But what makes this particular deal interesting, and it was intriguing to me, was that, first of all, it was uh, an internal champion on the sort of the business side who decided they were going to take this big corporate event that they had, right, a big sort of planning meeting, and offset it with a completely different sort of carbon offsets. Um, like I said before, the COTAP organization, they have a specific kind of offset that takes some of those proceeds and goes directly to the farmers or to the landholders or to the whoever that is helping um, to make this stuff happen. So it's going more to the local people on the ground. It, it's going directly to someone to help alleviate poverty and to change their economic status. It's not necessarily a handout. It could be a grant that they're earning for, uh, for doing some kind of program like carbon farming. But it's, it's a different twist. And these aren't cheap. They're, they cost more than the, the typical offset. So the fact that Expedia decided to go ahead and do this anyway is commendable because what they're saying with this uh, investment is that this is important, but let's, let's take it a step farther. So that was what was so intriguing to me about this particular do, do, situation, yeah. Heather, do you think that this kind of offset is sort of a higher quality, um, maybe more impactful at the human level, might help counter the you know, controversial image of offsets in general? I mean, a lot of them are you know, kind of seen as a scam. Uh, you know, writer George yeah. Monbiot famously compared them, as other people have, to the ancient Catholic Church's practice of selling indulgences, absolutions. <laughs> From, yeah. from sins and reduce time in purgatory for, you know, financial donations to the church. Mm -hmm. and, and this is a, a similar kind of thing where we, you know, absolve ourselves for, in this case, our travel sins and the emissions that come with that. And clearly, you know, for you and me, that's the biggest part of our professional and maybe, you know, life carbon footprint is airplane trips we take more than yeah. anything else, our cars or homes. And you know, is this going to help change that image? Is this a better uh, argument to be made for offsets? Yeah, so I'm, I'm constantly conflicted about a lot of things, Joel, <laughs> including this particular topic, because I think of uh, renewable energy credits and certificates in, in the same way. And, and yeah, I mean, you could consider it to be some kind of cop-out. But frankly, the projects wouldn't exist if they didn't have this kind of support. So... Yes, to the extent that the sort of volume-based ones might not necessarily change behavior, these really make you think about, I mean, you think twice about whether you're going to invest in this, and it's extremely well-documented through Plan Vivo. Um, and, you know, I think this particular type might make people more thoughtful about it. Um, it just takes it a step further and kind of makes you push reset and go, whoa, do I really need to do this? Like, do I really need to have this event in person? Do I really need to invite people from 30 different countries to come to one place? Or should I be doing this differently? Um, I, you know, yes, at the volume level, uh, carbon offsets could be construed as um, a cop-out. But they're better than nothing, right? Okay, better than nothing. Well, I'm not sure you made the sterling case for that, but let's... Uh... Let's okay. move on to another story. As I said, there are a couple of stories that you did. The other one is called What Siemens, Tesla, and Philips Have in Common. Now, I would look at this and say, well, they're all in the energy business. In some ways, they're increasingly all energy companies. Um, but that's not what this story is about, is it? Mm -hmm. It's more so about the fact that they're all thriving. Um, they all have amazing market capitalizations. I think Tesla, that at one point, was worth more than General Motors um, on the stock market. And 
this list that I wrote about, they're part of um, a new report out by uh, As You Sow and the Corporate Knights called the Clean Carbon 200. Now, this ranking was introduced last year, and it was meant to help investors see that there were a lot of large cap companies that were benefiting explicitly from their clean energy investments. So, so it's not like an index in the, in the sense that you could actually invest against it. Um, a lot of times um, the criticism is made that, you know, all these companies lose money and they, they're bad for shareholders, etc. But it's not the case. This list has existed for a year, and what struck me in particular was that it was flush with energy efficiency companies. So Siemens, Schneider Electric, ABB, Panasonic, Johnson Controls. The thing that all of those companies have in common is that they're huge into energy efficiency services, so helping companies prepare for a transition to a cleaner economy, kind of kick-starting, if you will, the the movement towards being able to invest in renewable energy, helping uh, a company reduce their power usage before that secondary investment in renewable energies. And so they're helping people sort of get on the right path, if you will. And Tesla was just out of the top 10, but um, there's 200 companies on this list, as I mentioned before, and it was flush full of, of companies that are doing great things. And uh, the average size of these companies is like $8.3 billion in terms of market capitalization. That is not small. You know, the, the fossil fuels industry loves saying, oh, these aren't great investments. But, you know, even if you weren't even particularly interested in clean energy as like a, a, a you know, sort of a moral imperative, they're good financial um, investment. Yeah. No, and yeah. You can look at the graph and the story, then look, it, it mm-hmm. tracks the... Uh, one-year stock performance of the yeah. Clean 200 versus the yep. S&P yep. Global 1200, um, which is uh, just sort of at zero right now, yep. um, and as opposed to the Clean 200 is at almost 17% return. Yep. So that's impressive. And, you know, the question that the skeptics always talk about is, well, are these companies profitable because of their clean energy stuff, or does the, the fact that these companies are profitable let them indulge mm-hmm, in these mm-hmm. unprofitable clean energy activities? And mm-hmm. so the correlation versus the causality issue is the one that comes up here a lot. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that corporate nights and as you so address that, but it's still mm-hmm. it's still impressive mm-hmm. to look at. I mean, stock performance is stock performance. And while it's also the bane of so many of these companies' existence and that they have to think quarterly and short-termism and all of that mm-hmm. uh, versus making longer bets, that is what makes these companies valuable. Yeah. I'd love to make two other points, Joel. One is I love on that chart you referenced in the story, I love the crossover point. Did you notice? The crossover point when the clean energy list starts really taking off is late January 2017. When a certain person was put into the White House in the United States, so well, see, um, I mean, I think I think Trump will clearly take credit. <laughs> for that. I think he'll take credit for that. And then the second thing is, I, I, I which would actually know, the, be a cool thing because <laughs> he's so far seen these as uh, anything from not helpful to a hoax. Um, yeah. And so it'd be great if he took credit for it, at least at some level. I mean, if, yeah. just that he would have some sense that this is uh, the real world now. <laughs> <laughs> the causality argument that you make is is a real one. Uh, and I'm just thinking about this a little bit. I mean, when I was looking at who the companies were, there's a lot of really old companies on this list, right? Companies that have been around a long time. There is probably some 
credence to your, your comment about, you know, okay, these, these companies have the money. They've been successful at something, so they're able to put money towards this, and, and they might have uh, more cash or more chutzpah on a, on a borrowing standpoint that, that they can put money into this. The two youngest companies sort of at near the top of the list, like in the top 20, were Tesla and BYD, the, the big Chinese electric vehicle company. So that is something that's probably worth more exploration, but this is one of those fun ranking stories that, um, that we love doing here and just sort of trying to put some context around. Great. And just for the record, Tesla's market cap right now is $58 billion, while GM's is $51 billion. Uh, yep. And, uh, you know, none of that holds a candle to Amazon, which is uh, $475 billion, or Apple, which is $815 billion. So these are still, um, well, they're mid-sized uh, uh, large companies. But the fact is that Tesla continues to forge ahead. And finally, for this section, uh, we had a piece by my old friend, uh, Andrew Beebe, called The Death of Alternative Energy. Now, Andrew has been one of these, uh, it's one of the leading lights in renewable energy and clean technology for a long time. I met him almost, I don't know, 15, 16 years ago, and he worked uh, with me at a company I co-founded called Clean Edge. He had already been a successful dot-com entrepreneur and had, had at least one uh, successful exit um, and uh, like a lot of people at that time, discovered, you know, discovered in quotes, uh, clean tech and wanted to learn more mm -hmm. about it. And mm -hmm. uh, but unlike a lot of people, he stuck with it and um, yeah. and made a, uh, worked in a number of companies in solar and and more recently uh, as a managing partner for Obvious Ventures, which is a venture capital firm based in San Francisco that focuses on world positive investments. That's sort of their their catchphrase, as um, co-founded by uh, Ev Williams, the co-founder of Twitter, and a couple of other principal partners who I've known as well. So all great people. And, and Andrew is one of the most thoughtful people that I know in looking at um, clean tech and energy space in general. And just one of my go-to people that I talk to for perspective on what's really going on. And he wrote a piece called the death of alternative energy. Uh, it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, as we'll, you'll hear in a minute, because it's not about the death of that. It's sort of the death of it being alternative. And it's just a really great perspective of where we are in this field, in this space, in this day and age, uh, what's going on, and, and, and sort of where it might be headed. So I took it upon myself to ring up Andrew happened to be on vacay this week in uh, New England with his family, as well he should be. But it was nice enough to take a few minutes uh, to talk about the piece. And I started off just asking him, why did he write this? You know, when Trump began the process of attempting to pull out of the climate accord, I think there was this collective fear that we were going to take a massive step backward. And I, and I just wanted to remind people of a little bit, at least of the near history, the last 15 years of how far we've come, and point out that we are on a one-way journey. This is not something that, you know, regardless of who attempts to do what, we're not going to see us return to the days of old. And I, and I wanted to take the opportunity to put, put it in perspective and show that there's great leadership coming from the corporate world now to point us uh, continually in the right direction globally and here in the U.S. So the, the death part is kind of tongue-in-cheek, that this is no longer alternative, 
this is truly mainstream, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there is this sort of depth of environmentalism, depth of history, depth of, you know, it just made sense to me that we would take a pause and say the alternative part of what we're doing is a part of history now. And, you know, the idea of somebody raising their hand and saying, you know what I'm going to do right now? I'm going to build some new coal plants. That would truly be an alternative statement. That would be very, very surprising. Last year, as you know, last year, more than 50% of new generation in the United States, which was put online, was wind and solar. That was not an anomaly. That was not an Obama thing. I think we're going to see that repeat itself again this year. And that's the real um, indicator of where we are and where we're going. So this is now just part of the mainstream, and that's, that's what I was trying to point out in the title. So you talk about the role of companies and the leadership role that, that they've played. Uh, and there's two parts of that. One is, is just being the market for these uh, energy technologies. Uh, and the other is actually being in the market, which is to say providing a growing number of products and services. Which do you think uh, is really le- leading the charge here? And, and which ones of those two pedals, if you will, do we need to step on harder? That is a fantastic question, Joel. I think the I think the former of in terms of being consumers and and being able to so powerfully and so quickly change markets by changing consumption is number one uh, in terms of impact. That that has happened when Google and Microsoft and Apple and Amazon uh, you know all stand up and Facebook and say we're going to go a hundred percent in our. Um, purchasing of energy, and we're one of the fastest growing energy consuming markets in the world, and we're going to do it globally, and of course, we're going to do it here in the U.S. Uh, that changes everything, even in statement, and now the fact that they're actually accomplishing it, some people like Google accomplishing it before the targeted year, I think that has had a massive impact, and, and that's the big game changer. They are now, I mean, I'll I'll segment a little bit further and say they're now going upstream and forcing their supply chain to change their ways as well. And I think that's probably the second biggest impact uh, yet to be seen. So that's the other pedal that's being stepped on and and accelerating things. I think that's great. And then the last piece of them actually producing products and services that uh, that might facilitate other people and uh, regular consumers to make transitions, I think is happening more slowly, and I also think isn't necessarily going to work out in all cases. I don't think Google buying Nest and and getting into the thermostat business and getting into the other home energy efficiency components of the business is necessarily a no-brainer. I think that we'll just see, you know, dark capitalism at work there, and some businesses will succeed and some will not. I do think one area that could use real pressure and is a great opportunity commercially is for utilities to take things further. They are listening to their corporate customers and they are really, you know, all of them, all 3,400 across the U.S. are changing their business models to better adapt to the needs of their corporate customers in terms of buying renewable energy. I think there's more they can do for their residential customers, both on the distributed generation, energy efficiency, as well as things like energy storage and uh, electric vehicles. There's just so much innovation that they could really be leading, and very few of them are, are taking that leadership position today. So how is all this being reflected in what you're seeing at Obvious Ventures and, and what you're investing in or looking to invest in? We are looking uh, increasingly past the world of renewable energy generation 
We have investments in two great solar companies, Siten and Mosaic, who are doing tremendous work helping people transform the residential solar industry and to some degree the energy efficiency industry. And we think that those are great bets and we're happy that we place them. But we want to uh, now look toward what a world looks like when we are increasingly electrified and increasingly just 100% renewable, which um, I think 10 years ago, we just never, we could not figure out how to put the pieces together in our wildest dreams. And now in Hawaii and California and in other states soon, I think we're going to see this very clearly take shape. So when you imagine that world, you just look at different types of businesses. So uh, a couple of big categories. One is the electrification of everything. Everything that used to have an internal combustion engine or used to uh, start with the heating of water or the burning of natural gas, we think is going to move toward an electrified way of life. So we're talking about things like hot water heating in the homes, electric vehicles, electric trucking, electric flight. All of these things are within the realm of the possible as you transition away from the use of fossil fuels, because those products, as we've learned from Tesla and now the Chevy Bolt and others, are not just cleaner products, they're just better products. And and that's where we want to look. We want to look to the layers built on top of this new way of thinking. So you reference in your piece Al Gore's movie, when, of course, uh, as being a catalytic uh, event in in sort of helping raise the consciousness uh, a decade ago, and of course a, a new version just came out. Um, my take on that, as we talked about on this show last week, is that it's a little bit too problem centric and not solution centric. Um, but you sound pretty optimistic. You sound like you're uh, still pretty excited about the potential, the positive outcomes, the world positive investments as you're making. Is that true? Or does this uh, death of alternative energy and the sort of mainstreaming of it? bring you the kind of hope that you think we can push through? I am incredibly optimistic about our opportunity for change and more than ever before, uh, change through the power of capitalism and uh, companies and entrepreneurs to start and build world positive, world changing companies. There are a couple of core reasons. One is the economics just work. It's just a better solution Uh, In almost all areas, there are places like India where we're seeing real ongoing challenges uh, because of the lack of environmental regulations allowing coal to be so cheap and a couple of other dynamics that are making it hard for them to make the transition. But I think they're going to get there as well. Another dominant factor is simply, I think everyone is getting more and more educated on climate change. And every single day, there are fewer and fewer deniers. No one recognizes the science of climate change, and then a week later says, you know what, I actually don't think it's real. It's the opposite, right? There are people who have been resistant to it and had legitimate concerns about it in the beginning, and then maybe held on from an ideological standpoint. And now we have fewer and fewer of those every single day. And because of that, we see less and less resistance to the real regulation and the real environmental benefits of a healthier, cleaner environment uh, around the world. And because of that, you just recognize this to be a one-way street. The only question is how soon and how quickly, and is it fast enough to really stop uh, the negative effects that are going to affect so many people if we don't act now? It's a good question. I mean, I think, uh, you know, we're already seeing some of the changes. I had a conversation with somebody uh, the other day who 
said something to the effect of, yeah, I, I think it is going to be a problem over the decades. This was somebody who lived in Florida. And they said, but, you know, I'll just move north. And my response was something to the effect of, you may be able to move north, but the other people who are going to be chasing you with pitchforks because there's going to be a revolution on our hands if we don't address this because so many people will literally be risking life and and obviously the way of life well that's why you can do what you're doing because you don't know and uh, we all have to make something better happen so thanks for doing that andrew andrew Beebe's managing partner at obvious ventures in san francisco thanks a lot andrew thank you joel Without federal oversight, who will be the standard bearer for the environment? Who will inspire, influence, and innovate to secure a sustainable future? Who will create a legacy of leadership? You will. Lead from the front. The Environmental Defense Fund has your back. In my role as pseudo-geek here at GreenBiz, I have the opportunity to write about a lot of different emerging technologies. And one of the trends I'm following very closely is microgrids. Not necessarily the microgrids of the past, many of which involve diesel technologies or, or gas-fired generators, but the newfangled microgrids that are coming into place that involve, in often cases, solar plus energy storage. There's a huge project going on in Denver right now, and it was um, brought about in part by the decision by Panasonic several years ago to move its headquarters from Newark to the Denver area. The division that moved was the Enterprise Solutions Group, which has a lot to do with integrating uh, many of these new technologies that are possible and make microgrids possible. I had the opportunity to catch up about the project, and you can read my, my latest dispatch on greenbiz.com. Um, but I also wanted to uh, share some highlights from my interview with the Denver Chief Sustainability Officer. Here is Jerry Tignano on the microgrid and its role in the community. Because of Panasonic's reputation and the work that they did, the fact that this particular division of Panasonic is heavily involved in LED technology and battery technology and solar technology and smart systems and so forth, uh, we badly wanted them to be here. And they indicated that sustainability, the city's orientation towards sustainability, would be a major factor in their decision. The first question from the media after we made the announcement from the Denver Post was to the CEO of Panasonic Enterprise Solutions, what role did sustainability play uh, in, um, in your decision? And he said it was a slam dunk for Denver, which... First of all, to have something like that on the front page of the Denver Post when you run a program like mine is fabulous. <laughs> you get a lot of mileage out of that. But also um, what it shows, and this really is kind of the green biz angle, uh, what it shows is that companies are making decisions about business location based on the sustainability track record of cities, all of which is to say we badly wanted them to be here and they wanted to be here. But I think... What won the day is the kind of 
collaborative approach we take to everything in in Denver. And you know, having having lived and worked in other cities, Denver really stands out in its ability to bring people in, from government, business, and the nonprofit sector together in a way that other cities don't. When, when we were one of the seven finalists for the Smart Cities Grant, you know, the U.S. Department of Transportation Smart Cities Grant. Although we didn't get it, part of the feedback we got from the Department of Transportation was the same thing we heard from Panasonic. Denver is a very notably collaborative place, and so we're able to put complex arrangements like this together. Um, that's whether you're talking about mobility or whether you're talking about renewable energy or a lot of other systems. The future of sustainability is electric, and the future of electric is the battery. And so, you know, the battery can be a real threat to the conventional operations of investor-owned utilities, or if they are wise in their transition to it, can be a real boon to them. Uh, And as a city, it's in our best interest that our investor-owned utilities succeed, that it make the transition successfully, and that it continues to be a strong player. And so the kind of the combination of those principles come together and lead us to say, so we really need to start experimenting with things like smart grid technology. And we have two uh, very strong partners that we work with very well, Excel Energy, our investor-owned utility, and Panasonic. So this project made a lot of sense, and we see it part of the overall strategy of working with our investor-owned utility to transition to uh, an energy future that's very different than what it is today. The, the mobility project has many, many different aspects to it, but one of them is the electrification of transportation. And so right now, even today, uh, an electric vehicle is going to put out less pollution and less uh, greenhouse gas emissions than a petroleum-fueled vehicle. Um, you know, we're, we're already up around 15 or 20 percent uh, of our electricity is, uh, is from renewable. And we've had days here in Denver where we've been up during certain times of the day, we've been up between 50 and 100 percent renewable. And that's only going to increase. So um, as the mix of electricity generation becomes more and more renewable, it makes more and more sense to have our vehicles be electric. But the conventional approach to electric vehicles is, well, let's build charging stations. And I don't think that that's really going to have a, a substantial effect on it. It's expensive and it's also unnecessary because most of the places you put charging stations are within well within the range of the vehicles that are using it, and these vehicles could simply go home and recharge. So um, the key to transitioning to much greater electric vehicles is mobility as a service. And you see this in our mobility plan. We need to stop thinking about the vehicle and start thinking about moving around as a service. It will move towards driverless vehicles, um, and by the way, I use the term driverless vehicles as distinct from autonomous vehicles. Um, I'm talking about a true driverless vehicle, a vehicle with no steering wheel, gas pedal, or brake. And everyone knows that when any vehicle travels more than 25,000 miles a year, the economically it, it's got to be electric. It's just going to be cheaper uh, and more reliable if it's electric. So. It, we we see mobility moving towards mobility as a service, not where nobody has a car, but where there are fewer cars, 
the cars that are out there are traveling a lot more miles per year because they're serving multiple customers instead of just one owner and that they will inevitably be electric. Uh, and if that's the transition that we're making, then we also want the electric to be as renewable uh, as possible because the combination of those two are going to help us solve the hardest problem in greenhouse gas reduction, which is the mobility sector. Whenever you can decentralize things, you have greater resilience in the system um, and you have a greater capacity to recover as a city. Another reason why we love this smart grid, our microgrid project that Panasonic's doing, because it not only goes to reducing greenhouse gas emissions, uh, but it also can uh, help to build the resiliency of the city in the event of an emergency. And that's a benefit to businesses too, because if you're a hotel, the people on the eighth floor don't really appreciate it when the elevator stops running, <laughs> especially if they have heavy luggage. So yeah, there's we see a lot of future benefits for business in this. Although there's a lot of overlap between sustainability and resilience, it's not a complete overlap. And there are actually areas where they can come into conflict if you're not careful. So we decided that resilience would reside in the Office of Emergency Management and Homeland Security. I have a special relationship with that department, and I work with them a lot because in the areas where these two things may conflict, we have to confer and come up with approaches that will avoid those conflicts, that it does not reside in my office. And that's by choice and by design. Let's turn now to a different facet of the conversation around sustainable cities, one involving equity and race, certainly things that have been in the news uh, this week and, and actually for a long, long time. This week, senior writer Lauren Hepler looked at a phenomenon just starting to be discussed in cities as diverse as Miami, Houston, and Oakland, California, climate gentrification. Lauren, uh, let's start with a basic definition. What is climate gentrification? Hi, Joel. So this is really an outgrowth of the push to ratchet up something we've talked about on this podcast before, planning for resilience in cities. So that can be either retrofitting existing buildings or building new structures that can withstand climate shocks like sea level rise, but also hopefully respond to more ingrained problems that can threaten a community's longevity, like unaffordability, a lack of job opportunity. Obviously, like we saw flare up this weekend in Virginia, race anxiety that has not been dealt with can be any number of things, really. So the gentrification piece comes in here when you start thinking about what it takes to build big projects in a city. And some critics like David Capelli, who's the founder and CEO of a civic consulting firm called Tech Miami, say that resilience in some places is being used as kind of a land grab where new environmentally state-of-the-art projects are being built without consideration for affordability or even allowing public access. Okay, so I kind of get that, but where does climate fit into this? How do we know that that's a factor in uh, any of these cities? Right, right. And this obviously is a fairly new school of thought. So you have some people like the chief resilience officer of Miami-Dade County that have pushed back on the idea that there is an explicit link to planning for climate action and gentrification. To get a little more specific, the neighborhood that's getting a lot of attention in Miami is Little Haiti, which is majority black and historically a lower income neighborhood, but that is also physically on higher ground than wealthier areas along the beaches. So property values have more than doubled than Little Haiti in the last five years, according to Trulia. 
as the area has become this focus of, of city redevelopment and resilience planning. And nearby, you've also got several big new LEED certified projects that include all kinds of high-end designer retail and other things that aren't the most accessible. So a lot of this isn't new. We've been talking about social justice and equity issues and environmentalism, and they've always been sort of interesting bedfellows, kind of parallel paths, uh, probably not intersecting as often as they could or should. Um, and there's definitely at times some competing interests between the two. We see that here in Oakland where you know, gentrification uh, is pushing people out and there's environmental issues around some of the trucks uh, that pass through the, the port of Oakland. And is it clear what some of the sticking points are when it comes to this? And how does this relate to resilience? It's an interesting question, and I definitely got different answers asking people. But one thing is just sort of a starting point. I remember Van Jones, the political commentator and founder of several both environmental and social justice groups in Oakland. Um, he said that resilience, like sustainability, can just inherently sound like a term for, he said, college people writing papers. So one idea is that we can get a little too abstract, buzzwordy, not really relating to the people who live in the areas that we're trying to make more resilient. Uh, but another person I spoke with, Carl Mays, who's the founder and CEO of Mays Civic Innovation in San Francisco, talked about going to in-person resilience workshops that are now being held by cities and groups like the Rockefeller Foundation offshoot 100 Resilient Cities. They actually pay for cities to hire chief resilience officers. But she has seen kind of parallel conversations take place where you have community groups concerned about very concrete issues like confusion about hurricane evacuation routes or rising rents or racial tension. And then you have sort of more conceptual environmental issues being raised about longer term greenhouse gas emissions caps or taking houses off the electric grid. So obviously there are things where there could be some overlap. Energy independence is good for all kinds of people, but bridging that gap isn't always easy to do. Sure, that's been the focus of another group. Van Jones started Green for All. How, does, how do we make these environmental innovations uh, available to everyone at every income level? And, and how do they get in on the job creation and all of that? So this is clearly a moment where urbanization is uh, not only a global trend, but a global concern. Why do you think these issues are coming to a head now? The point that was made by Carla Mays is that cities are very much in the process right now of spending a lot of money, six, seven figures on the reports alone, for planning for climate adaptation and resilience. And in her view, they're not doing enough in those efforts to account for the baggage we have in cities. So one example would be housing redlining policies for sort of that post-war era that have historically shut minorities out of building wealth. So she points out that some cities that once we're sort of the face of urban renewal in bulldozing poor areas after World War II, like the Fillmore District and San Francisco, are now sort of becoming darlings of the resilient cities movement. So I think the fear is that history will repeat itself. And for people like Mays, who are also coming at this from sort of a civic hacking perspective, we could see divides that are potentially even more extreme when you factor in things like the push for smart cities apps and other technologies that, again, you really have to think about access first and foremost. So what do we do here? Obviously, sustainability is about social, economic, and environmental issues, but a lot of us tend to focus just 
too heavily on the environmental piece. So obviously, you need to bring the social piece in. But it's also a matter of how do we make the rhetoric match the reality when it comes to resilience, part of which is the social fabric and social equity. I think definitely the key is getting specific, avoiding sort of like talking in generalities. So one uh, very specific way that May said she worries about some of these inequities getting baked into newer buildings or new uh, city planning efforts is the lead rating system, which is actually now a part of the building code in places like San Francisco. So the challenge there is that the cost of training architects or planners for accreditation can be thousands of dollars. So that's why May and Capelli uh, in Miami have started an effort called hashtag smart cohort, which aims to help get candidates lacking funds accredited for lead for neighborhood development or lead ND. Um, the issue there is they're still on the hook for the training costs, which are estimated at around $50,000 for their initial cohort of 17 people in Miami last year. So funding, definitely a sticking point. I think one of the places that's particularly true, and I've talked to Carla Mays about this, is with the lead ND, which is about neighborhood development. And she makes a really good case that the people who live in the neighborhoods, often uh, in poorer neighborhoods or marginalized communities, you know, don't get to have a say because they can't afford uh, to be lead ND accredited professionals here. They just it's just inaccessible to them by virtue of, of the cost of this. And what she's trying to do is make this accessible to bring more people from the neighborhoods into the process of planning the neighborhoods. But but I'm wondering, Lauren, what is the US Green Building Council that administers the lead rating system? What do they have to say about this? I talked to Jason Hercules, who's based in Washington, has a city planning background, but is now a manager focused on lead ND. And he told me that it's true. The group does have very limited funding for making accreditation available pro bono. So there is a clear need here for, for funding from an outside group, at least at this point. But one thing to watch from the folks at the U.S. Green Building Council is an effort to add what they're calling a pilot credit for social equity to lead ND. So that would give developers that are trying to achieve their high lead uh, ratings on their scorecard extra points or an incentive to build in elements like affordable housing or communal space. Wow. Interesting. Well, thanks for bringing that sort of light and, and we'll stay on that to see how it evolves. Uh, Lauren Hepler, senior writer. Thanks a lot. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organizations, the stories, other things we've mentioned in this episode. You can send us an email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love your comments. Thanks to GreenBiz 350 director this week, Lauren Rosenthal. And we'll be back here next week for another edition of GreenBiz 350. From all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. Without federal oversight, who will be the standard bearer for the environment? Who will inspire, influence, and innovate to secure a sustainable future? Who will create a legacy of leadership? You will. Lead from the front. The Environmental Defense Fund has your back.